Well, during the sitting, I was thinking of one of my favorite little poems from David Budbill, and fortunately I was able to find it in my pile of junk. And it goes like this, and I think it captures the spirit of what I wanted to share in my stray thoughts tonight. It's, did I give you the title? It's entitled Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago, said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say that's right. Every day climbing up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or look around. See your fellow bugs. Walk around. Say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. So the, the thrust of, it's all happens by not going anywhere, by the way, but the thrust of the awakening that we come together to celebrate each week is a, you could describe it as a movement from the narrow world of our, uh, our mind, mind worlds, the narrow world of our self-preoccupations, all those little things, cry, moan, feel sorry for ourselves. Mostly the preoccupation with the, the story of ourselves, with, the, with the, um, the version of ourselves that's playing in our mind pretty, pretty constantly. It's coming out of that tangle, coming out of that narrow gravitational field of our personality view and our ideas to this wider gravitational field of what we call the Dharma, of the way, of the, the way of freedom. So you hear in the teachings this, this movement from narrow to wide a lot. It's, a, it's this natural, op- you hear opening, moving from a kind of narrow, microscopic attention, which paradoxically gives way to this vast panoramic view of of reality. And this, um, this process happens uh, very gradually in a way. But it, its culmination is, uh, is a scent, is that one taste of freedom. If you think back on the on the um, time of the Buddha, the Buddha's awakening. He sits under the Bodhi tree and he, he wants desperately, his, the whole orientation of his personality, his life, is this longing to find freedom. And he's going and he goes to this teacher and he goes to that. And then finally, he stops and he says, I will not get up again. Until, I'm, until I've realized this, the taste of freedom, till I've experienced the sure heart's release. 
says, I will, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to practice without regard for body or life. I'll eat enough so that I can practice, but I'm, I'm no longer going to be intoxicated, enchanted with youth, with health, with life. I'm going to find something that cannot be, be taken away from me. And he, uh, and in the process of stopping, he was visited with all of those old tendencies to shut down, to be afraid, to, to say, oh, I, I can't be happy. I can't be truly happy. And that was Mara, you know, Mara coming to visit. And Mara's busy in our mind telling you, you need to be more productive. You need to stay engaged. You need to do something about everything that's, that's wrong in this world, which is maybe the natural expression of the heart. But often Mara is, is keeping us in a, constructing ourselves as a doer, as a becomer. We're always becoming. You know, there's lots of humor that's been made out of this, this constant running, this state of becoming. I actually brought one of those little things. Again, I'm, I'm going through my cavalcade of favorites tonight. This is my favorite piece on becoming from a comedian named Larry Miller, who, um, and this is his view on aging. This has been, over the years, it's been attributed to George Carlin, but it's Larry Miller. He says, do you realize that the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids. If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging that you think in fractions. How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. You're four and a half going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens, now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number, or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm gonna be 16. I could be 13, but hey, you're gonna be 16. And then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21. Yes, yes. But then you turn 30. Ooh, what happened there? Makes you sound like bad milk. He turned. We had to throw him out. There's no fun now. You're just a sour dumpling. What's wrong? What changed? You become 21. You turn 30. You're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the brakes. It's all slipping away. Before you know it, you reach 50 and then your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60. You didn't think you would. You become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50 and make it to 60. You built up so much speed that you hit 70. After that, it's a day-by-day -day thing. You hit Wednesday. You get into your 80s and every day is a complete cycle. You hit lunch, you turn 4.30, you reach bedtime. It doesn't end there. Into your 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92. I was just with my 93-year-old mother this weekend. Then a strange thing happens. If you make it over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm 100 and a half. May we all make it to a healthy 100 and a half. So there is this going, and it's partly because of this very strong, this deep identification, 
taking ourselves to be this body. But this body uh, is, although it is the uh, vehicle, you could say, of our, it's the manure of our waking, the vehicle of our waking, the vehicle of this life, it, it, this does not define us. So the identity with the body is a, is a kind of trap. It's a, it's a cause and condition for a lot of insecurity because the body ages, the body gets sick, it dies. We went through that last week. I'm sure to become ill, I can't avoid illness. Sure to become old, I can't avoid aging. I'm sure to die. Um, I'm sure to become separated from all that I hold near and dear. So all this identification with what I have and what I want with my body, it creates tension. And it, it is not a... Um, and that tension generates a kind of discharge, a kind of compulsion to keep going. And the Buddha stopped that. He didn't gain a single thing when he stopped. What he did was he, he removed the mistaken perceptions of, of who he was. And he, he woke up. And he woke up to what was always already there. He became the Buddha, it just means awake. He discovered his, his kind of primordial wakefulness, this kind of essential nature, kind of, sometimes it's called Buddha nature, God nature. It has no name, it's, it is not nameable really, but you can add whatever name you want. But it can't be captured in any word. And it is so close, it's so near, it's so vast, it's so wondrous, easily missed. So he had this awakening. But it's very, and then he spent the next 45 years telling people how to, how to recognize this. And he said, to be realized here and now by the wise. He didn't say to be realized someday or postponed or because the spiritual path then becomes an endless becoming of enlightened, which can also become another identity that just keeps us on the treadmill of tension, of waiting, of hoping, of expecting. So very soon after the Buddha's life, as most of you probably know, people forgot about the teachings, forgot about, the, forgot about what he was pointing to, the realization, and they started praying to him. They turned him into a deity. And then, instead of remembering that what he recognized is what's always already available in us, they said, I'm going to pray to the Buddha. They prayed for, for abundance, prayed for healing, prayed for, what, for a good job, or whatever it was. Our mind starts projecting that incredible, indescribable nature onto some, de some person or place or just something other than what's so close. It's always right here. And the, the sad part is, in all of that longing, that sincere longing for peace, our mind gets more narrow and narrow and narrow, gets bound in time. We end up on this little runway called past, present, future. Coming from a past, which is all imaginary, passing through the present on our way to the point of enlightenment. 
And all of that is a kind of dream. There is no time in reality. That's, a, that's part of our conceptual reality. So we all have this Buddha nature, this intrinsic, essential freedom. But we also have this conditioned mind that is constantly going out in search. Tied up with our personality, tied up with our history. Uh, so it's partly inevitable, as I speak about every week. But it's just so easy to even turn our meditation practice into a, uh, a way of postponing or of looking away from um, the natural freedom, the, the widening view that is who you are right now when you're not landing in some narrow view, in some, some um, idea of yourself. Kala Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, said when he had his own awakening, he says, you live, he saw the commonality of our humanity, he says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things, these things that come and go, our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And I'll add a little bit of my own editorial. You are nothing that can be described. You are the nameless. You are nothing, but the, here's where it gets juicy. But being nothing, you are everything. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. But being nothing, you are everything. And I think important for at least this little bit of the conversation is the the rendition from the teacher Sri Nisargadatta. This is more from an Advaita Vedanta teacher. He says, love, well, I'll do it based on the same, the same trajectory as, um, as Kala Rinpoche. He says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between these two, my life flows. So what we discover in waking up, what we discover what is always already available to us is the wisdom of voidness or emptiness. The, forget the words, the wisdom. And I don't want you to just adopt an idea about this. I want you to check it out in real time. The wisdom of moving beyond the idea of yourself to a direct experience is to check it out. To check out what, what you can say, what you are on present evidence. What is that? And what I'd like to suggest is if you 
stay here, you'll see that you are, that your mind, your essence, you could say, it's permeated with love, light, you could say, a kind of a luminosity, attention, and love. The face of this openness, when I say openness, I mean moment, momentarily free of your preoccupation. The face of that is the sense of connection with everything, being everything. The way that manifests, and you can't just adopt this as a belief, you have to actually see, see what's happening, see how it works for you. When you really give up, when you drop the idea of yourself, if you enjoy that a little bit, get used to it. The natural expression, what the Buddha described as the natural expression of openness or your Buddha nature is, are these immeasurable qualities, these heart qualities that we call love, Compassion, when that love meets the pain that may present itself in this field of openness. The joy that presents it, the joy that comes when, when what's met in this field of openness is someone else's joy. And a quality of equanimity or a kind of um, impartial love that feels an equality of affection for each thing, all beings. There's nothing left out. Like there, just as there's no experience in our attention, in our moment-to-moment -moment attention, there's no special experience, there is no special person. There is no one in our, it's, it moves beyond the, our usual notions of love, which is, are often just sentimental love, moves to this more universal love, you could say, impartial love, where we feel equal goodwill and care about all beings. And then there's no one that's outside of our field of, of loving kindness. And yet, that wideness of view and the evenness of mind that comes from just being aware in a sustained way uh, allows us also to, to mature in the wisdom that sees that this world is a, is a changing sea of conditions and it's driven by so much greed and so much delusion, so much hatred, and that with my love, I will do everything I can. It's just, it comes out of that openness, that giving way to not so much my own preoccupations, but giving way to this widening circle of being the quality of equanimity allows me to say, I will do everything, but whether or not this world turns out the way I want it to, it's beyond my, it's beyond my will or my wish. It's just, um, I care about you, world, but I can't keep you from suffering. That's essentially what we're, 
we realize. And so we, we are able to keep our heart open and keep our joy growing, be able to celebrate our twins. Amazing. Amazing. And um, have joy in this world and have our hearts break with the pain, but maintain a certain balance, our equanimity. So this quality of, I, I'm, I keep moving this area, that somehow physically the, the, the heart qualities that flow from openness, it's, it seems to have a felt experience in our body. It, it kind of radiates from the, what we call the heart center. Even though heart and mind are the same word, there's really no, you know, we just have a, we, we always point to our mind up here, but it's not up there. This is in one of my teachers, Anagarka Manindra, or actually Manindra's student named Krishna used to say, guard your mind, and she'd put her hand on her heart. But we have this kind of English split between heart and mind. In the Pali language, it's chitta, consciousness. Uh, and in the Hindu tradition, they go, they talk about sat, Chittananda, sat. Sat is truth or being. Chit, or wait, chit is, um, chitta is, um, is consciousness. And then ananda, satchitananda, being, consciousness, bliss. There's a kind of aliveness, there's a kind of radiance to our being when we, and all those heart qualities. In the Tibetan tradition, they talk about the, what's called the Dharmakaya, the Kayas, the Dharmakaya, Sambodakaya, Nirmanakaya, the, the uh, essence or the nature, um, the essence empty, nature clarity, the expression unconfined capacity which means all of the intelligence, all the heart qualities, they flow from openness. So when you say there's a difference between mindfulness and love, when you are mindful, love flows. When you are in a state of love, there is a lot of attention there. There's a kind of undivided quality. There's a one-pointedness. So the invitation, uh, what my motivation was, is to come out of the tangle. Uh, who was it, Rumi, who said, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. And just to, in honor of our conditioned, we're very conditioned to stay in prison, to have a narrow mind, to become absorbed, is two things. Celebrate the moments where you come out of that tangle. Don't judge the fact that you got tangled. It's conditioned. It's not personal. It's not your fault. Second, because we are so trained to be caught in grasping and condemning and delusion, delusion of myself, of my story, 
because we're so caught in that, we, one of the ways to encourage the, that int- those intrinsic qualities of the heart to flow is that we remind ourselves. We use our conceptual mind to say, to look around, see our fellow bugs, do what I do is, I call it stealth metta. Wish people well. May you be happy. May you be happy. I love you. I love you. I love you. May you be. And widening your circle, just orienting yourself, inclining your mind toward connection. It's just a, a turning. It's a mind turning. You know, last week I talked about the mind turning reflections. To reflect on impermanence, reflect on karma, reflect on on, um, on um, uh, the defects of the world of suffering, etc. It's using the conceptual mind to, to turn your mind toward being awake. So we can do that in any moment. So from, just as I always, I've got to learn to do it myself, but from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed, practice metta. Loving kindness, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy. May you be peaceful, may you feel safe. Tune in to the, the, at least what I see with almost everybody I know is they have this basic ground of unsafety. Constantly worried about offending somebody or being hurt or um, we just live in such... um, unsafety and maybe for good reason from our past conditioning but there's something about inclining toward wishing yourself and wishing others that safety in that there is a widening each time you do it and you essentially return to your natural state again you're not adding anything that's not already always um, part of you so I guess this is really just all about the wish for you to know that you are nothing and being nothing, being everything and connecting with that which you are with love. Uh, So may we all awaken to wisdom and love. I guess I'll end with a little passage from Thich Nhat Hanh. You are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we enter our You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. May it be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.